The Secrets of Star Wars is brought to you by the StarQuest Production Network and is made possible by our many generous patrons. If you'd like to support the podcast, please visit sqpn.com slash give. Hello there. Obi-Wan Kenobi here, also known as James Arnold Taylor, the voice of Obi-Wan. Jedi Master Plo Koon. And many other characters in the world of Star Wars. You're listening to... Shh, don't tell. It's the secrets of Star Wars. May the Force be with you. You're listening to the secrets of Star Wars, episode 138. Hello there. It's a power that Jedi have that lets them control people and make things float. Impressive. Every word in that sense was wrong. Help me, Obi-Wan Kenobi. You're my only hope. This station is now the ultimate power in the universe. I find your lack of faith disturbing. It's against my programming to impersonate a deity. That's not how the Force works. Force is with me, and I am with the Force, and I fear nothing. Remember, the Force will be with you, always. Hey everyone, I'm Angela Ciolana, and you're listening to The Secrets of Star Wars, where we talk about everything connected to that galaxy far, far away including the deeper themes and meanings. Today we are diving into episode 11 of the Andor series, the penultimate episode. And joining me today are, uh, well, we've got Patrick Mason. Hello, Patrick. Howdy, howdy. And we finally got the return of Ryan Nafziger. How is it going? (laughs) Hello again. Doing well. Well, Ryan, it's uh, your first time in a while so i know your very first time everyone was like super eager to get into andor um and i would love it if you could start us off by telling us a little bit more about yourself and your relationship with star wars yeah so my earliest memory of star wars corresponds very nicely with me getting my nintendo 64 when i was about seven and the earliest thing i can remember about star wars is playing star wars episode one pod racer so that probably gives you an idea of what I really like about Star Wars. The uh, the music, for one, because the zooming pods coming all around the speakers in my home was really fun for me as a kid. The, the ships with all of their weird, zany looks and the aliens. So that's actually really what I enjoy a lot about Star Wars. The universe, the very unique... Uh, the very unique combination of kind of a kind of a like a sort of World War Two X space feel um, very different than a lot of other fantasy. So that's my favorite things about Star Wars. And let's see here. My weirdest Star Wars thing that I own is I own the complete collection of commemorative episode one Pepsi product cans. Wow. So I've never nice. heard anyone say that before. The whole it is, thing. The whole thing. It was a white elephant gift. I didn't go and buy this. So if you if you want to drink Mountain Dew out of a Jar Jar can, let me know. I I kind of do now. I don't I don't know why. It's in a box under my bed. In, in my bed. That's awesome. Yeah. So that was very lucky of you, I guess. Uh, yeah, luck. That's a, a good elephant way of putting it. <laughs> <laughs> well, and Ryan, you've also kind of shared in the behind the scenes uh, with our panel that you have classical music training. Is that right? Yeah. So I've been playing piano since I was about four years old. Um, my lovely grandmother, who is still alive, taught me and I 
let's see here. I've been playing for about 20 years at this point. Um, and yeah, I've, I think I've played six instruments over the course of my musical lifetime. So a lot of different contexts, um, classical jazz, um, I've done music production for electronic music. I currently do liturgical music at two different parishes. So I'm a very musical person, and that definitely comes into how I appreciate things um, that not everyone's going to recognize in Star Wars. So I'm I'm excited to eventually talk about that, hopefully, in the future. Yeah, the future meaning maybe in the next few minutes. So yes, yeah, literally. Yeah, very near future. <laughs> awesome. Well, uh, we before we get into all that good stuff, we also want to give a shout out to the people that do listen to us, um, including Kelly, who left a comment on Facebook about last week's episode. And Kelly said, I loved hearing your discussion regarding Andor and how he's not as interesting as the other characters. I agree, but I'm wondering <laughs> if that is the point. Cassian isn't your typical hero, but what he does create, uh, but he does create heroes like Kino. It was Andor that encouraged him on. Cassian, like Luthen, is going to be the guy in the shadows doing the non-heroic but necessary things to win the war. That was where he was at the beginning of Rogue One. Thanks, Kelly. So very interesting um, assertion here. Guys, what do you think? Do you agree with Kelly about Cassian creating heroes but not really being the hero? I mean, I see Cassian as he's he's the reactor, Right. Um, and by that, I mean, he is not necessarily a man of action. Um, he 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 has kind of a goal in sight a lot of times in a short term kind of a way, which is usually, you know, either get money or get out or um, mm -hmm. find my sister, I guess. Someday we'll figure that one out. Um, <laughs> <laughs> or, or but um, really, he's just moving from moment to moment. And for the most part is is what we've get, gotten from him in this season or yeah, in this season and in the series as a whole, because you start out with him, you know, in this one scene looking for a sister, but then he shoots a guy. And then from that moment on, he's on the run and he never stops. There's no stopping. And so he is just constantly reacting to the situation. And that also seems to be how he does with the people he interacts with is it's always an interaction with them. His part as not saying very much, reacting what they say and then giving them like the length and breadth of like giving him what he needs to react to next. It doesn't seem like he is very interested in telling much about himself. Like even in the, in the conversation with Luthen that he has where Luthen is kind of digging into him, like this is who you are. I know who you are. Um, even then he's giving him very little going back. And so, yeah, I think, I think it is purposeful the way Andor acts not showing himself and then constantly reacting because he's always trying to get to the next thing. And that's the most expedient way to do it. Interesting. Yeah. Brian, any thoughts? Yeah. I, I think it's true that there are definitely characters that I find more interesting than Cassian. Um, I, for one, find Vel a lot more interesting than Cassian because she, um, she's having to kind of be the, in a weird way, she kind of has to be the, anti-Mon Mothma to the whole thing. Not necessarily in morals, but definitely um, 
her role as a as a figure in the rebellion is kind of above her um her role as like a a member of royalty let's say but like with cassian it's so interesting because there's so much that we just don't know about him and we don't get a lot of context to see the deeper side of cassian we we see we see someone who's very like wounded but we don't really know why necessarily and he kind of just gets thrown across the universe in a constant flight or fight or flight um situations which is kind of interesting because we get to experience a whole lot of different characters like over the course of this series we've seen like what a dozen unique and like main slash slash major characters but in the midst of that, we've kind of left Cassian kind of to the side in in a way where he, I don't know, where, where he doesn't get a lot of uh, character development. And even though he's being challenged, he kind of stays stagnant if, mm. if you kind of get that. Yeah, yeah I mean, I, I do think definitely um, we see what he is reacting to, uh, to, you know, speak to what Patrick was saying. And also what you were saying, Ryan, about, um, you know, just kind of not necessarily knowing what's going on with him emotionally. Like we can guess what's going on with him emotionally by what we see on the outside. But it's kind of like we as an audience are sort of held at arm's length, just like everyone else in his life, which is kind of interesting when you think about like whether that was an intentional writing choice or not. Um, and. I mean, I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing if that may change, but, you know, maybe in season two, uh, but I, I don't, I don't see that, you know, changing in the last, the season finale. Right. So, um, but I mean, there's, there's, yeah. So thanks Kelly for that. And, and there's a lot to get into. So we're just going to jump right into episode 11 of Andor, which is called Daughter of Barracks. Um, and the official summary is, once again on the run, Cassian plans his next move, hoping to get back to Ferrix before it is too late. So guys, um, this was a really interesting um, episode that started on a cliffhanger. <laughs> yes. um, literally. <laughs> literally. <laughs> uh, so what were your first impressions just overall of this episode um patrick we'll start with you um it was a very somber episode mm. um just the way um the way everything played out the way everything was shot um the i would even say the music um although i'm less attuned to that uh but it you know the the scene even them escaping was kind of a somber thing they're they're on the you know miami planet or whatever mm. it was the the pleasure world and they're just staring out of this ocean, this kind of bleak sunrise or sunset. You can't really tell there's nobody else there. It's just him and the other guy. And they're like, somebody has to say something about this. And, um, you go to the, all the stuff that happens with Cassian's mom and the, the, the interplay with the droid and the other people who are there. Um, it, it, the, the stuff that happens between, um, on Mothma and Vel and her daughter it's all very somber. It's, it's all very sort of, I, I don't know how to, somber is the best way I can put it. It, it, um, it felt very much like, um, 
Oh gosh. There's a word and I'm trying trying to grasp it's a musical word actually. It's requiem. It felt like a requiem. Um, so it wasn't quite a dirge, right? So it wasn't quite that, that, that terrible, like death dirge, but it, it felt, it's just, mm -hmm. it was sad all around, even though everything seemed to be moving forward, but eventually you got a glimpse of where it was moving towards and how all the pieces were going to fit together and the explosion that was going to happen because of that. And the the scene with Bix and the scene with all of the characters, like kind of broken down or broken apart. Um, that's what, what really struck me about this episode. Wow, you put that so well. Congratulations. That was, I'm proud of you for that. That's, like, seriously. I was like, wow, a requiem? That is so profound. Indeed. I don't, think I, I don't even think I could talk about <laughs> Well, I mean, Ryan, how did you like this episode? Like, how did, how, how did it strike you? I think that, I, I don't think that I... I don't think that this episode or this series really was necessarily for me, um, but that's because I I really appreciate I appreciate a little bit more of the lighthearted side of Star Wars than this sort of thing. Like for me, Rogue One was kind of like my limit when it came to the darker side of Star Wars. Mm. Um, so this has been like a little bit. It's been very challenging, actually, to to watch, not like in a not in a moral sense, but just like in a, t a tone and taste sense. But um, some of the things that struck me the most were the first time we've seen like a droid grieving. Um, mm. I mean, other than a few beeps and whistles from R2-D2 and other films, we haven't really seen a droid that could speak uh, grieve uh, in the way that B did. Um, also, just the the very shocking um the very shocking uh face of bix in in the scene where when we see her again was yeah. that that almost took me out of the took me out of the scene i was like oh my goodness she is she is a skeleton um uh there were some scenes that i def that were definitely my favorite i think uh I think uh, Luthen's James Bond uh, ship was <laughs> one of the coolest things that I've seen in a while. In fact, probably yeah. the, the, my favorite part of this, my favorite standalone scene of this series was definitely that few minute sequence. Um, but it's just it, it. The thing that struck me the most about this episode and the show in general was that it's very. Um, there isn't a lot of fantasy in in Andor. Yeah. Um, it's very it's very very um I guess almost I guess I'd say worldly <laughs> in a in a way. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um yeah. which is my biggest the biggest thing that rubs me the wrong way about it cuz um I love it when Star Wars is not very um is not very dark and and worldly and doesn't take a lot Realistic. of realism. I yeah. love, I love the much more kind of um, slapstick is the wrong word. Um, kind of fly <laughs> by the seat of your pants. Sort yeah, of, goofy. Um, yeah. Yeah. The fly by the seat of your pants. Star Wars is, is my favorite side of things, but I definitely can appreciate. Um, I can, it's kind of like if you see the lows, you can much more appreciate the highs. I feel like I can appreciate way more a lot of the a lot of the scenes like in six um 
Star Wars Episode Six, not Andor Episode Six, mm-hmm. where Mon Mothma is kind of describing the final moment of the rebellion. It's like, man, thinking back to Andor now and to see all of the difficulties she went through, and now looking forward to that, you realize how how much that scene meant with everybody, you know, coming right. together. Yeah, yeah. That's my, um my side of things yeah yeah um and you know speaking of fantasy we do actually surprisingly get a little bit of fantasy with our first like speaking aliens in this episode Mm -hmm. um i say better late than never (laughs) i (laughs) I thought these guys were neat um the narkinian aliens i guess is what i'll call them so um melshi and cassian are in their break from the prison uh, they're looking pretty desperate. They're trying to grab the quad jumper off of these guys, which anytime I hear quad jumper, I think of Ray's like British accent saying quad jumper. Yes. So, <laughs> <laughs> um, but what did you guys think of these aliens and this whole interaction with them? Kind of refreshing in a way. Because so much of Andor has been um, so much of Andor has been focused on really like almost dogmatic people where you have either the people who are in the rebellion and they are committed. Maybe their motives are sketchy, but they are, they're going to die in the rebellion, you know, and they know it, or you have the empire and they know that they're going to stop at nothing until everything's under their shoe. But these aliens are just like as close to normal people as we've seen sort of, you know, living day to day and not necessarily not okay with the empire and in their own little way going to kind of give the empire, you know, the middle finger um, <laughs> by helping, by helping uh, prisoners escape. <laughs> so it was, it was nice. And I definitely thought we were going to see some sort of a, you know, terrible scene where one guy gets, <laughs> gets killed or, and Cassian tries to escape, but no, they got out of it. So it was a nice, it was a nice little break, kind of. <laughs> yeah, it, it it struck me just like as a neat scene. Like I don't know how it's I would I would phrase it because you they're going it, it it's it's like it's shot and especially for this show like you're going into the scene thinking oh gosh they're gonna kill these two farmers and take their ship and and oh my gosh <laughs> like can we get more dark. Um, and then no, they like get caught in this weird net contraption thing, which was hilarious. And then the she the lobs gu- webs. Yeah, it's like finding. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I you're like, think huh, that's, a, that's pretty cool. And they're like, the guys are talking to each other about what to do with them, and and Cassian's like, no, 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 we're not. <laughs> we just want to get out mm-hmm. of here. And then you know you figure, okay, now they're gonna like sell them back, and they're you know that this it's still gonna go dark somehow, and. The, and eventually the guy's like, yeah, screw the Empire. <laughs> you know? Well, where do you want to go? Where are you, where are you going? And I'm like, wow, that was awesome. <laughs> mm-hmm. it, just, it just worked out. He caught a break. He caught a break. <laughs> For the first time this whole series. <laughs> yep. That's so true. I never thought of it that way. Um, and, you know, their kind of lackadaisical fisherman vibe was... I thought very appropriate for the planet. Um, Just, you know, the way that they didn't like the empire obviously made a whole lot of sense because of the reasons that they were giving. Um, 
but so they drop off Cassian and Melshi on Neomos, uh, and Cassian grabs his stuff hidden in the former bathroom that he was in, which was kind of funny. Um, and Melshi seems verbally committed to this cause of telling the galaxy about, you know, what was going on inside the prison. Um, but I'm just wondering if you guys believe him and to what extent would you imagine that he would actually do that and be successful at it? I mean, he's, a, he's an escaped con, right? Um, and so, I mean, he's probably terrified to some extent, like that he's going to get picked up and sent right back to where he got out of. Um, and the other thing is like, like just cause you want to be in the rebellion doesn't mean you can be. Um, it kind of harkens back to that scene where Luke, I don't remember, um, if it's Obi-Wan or who says something about the rebellion and he's like, you know about the rebellion? Like, like he's like super interested and, and maybe would have joined a while back, but it's not like you can just go up to a, a recruiting post and join the rebellion, right? It's all secret. And so yeah. like, there's no way to know, no way for that guy to know where to go. Um, unless it's in his past, like there's a possibility that that's why he got picked up and that's where I, he is where he is. Um, and so it's just sort of, I don't know. I kind of do. I believe like, you know, the way that it was portrayed, I believe like he wants to do that thing, but I don't know if he knows how. I am wondering if I'm wondering what he's in for, because it's definitely the case since the prison crackdown that, you know, if you can get a, if you can get six years for walking down the side of a road, you can just show up one day with an unknown sentence and just be a random man off the street. but. I don't think it's the case for him because in is a bit weird. I watched the recap scene going into 11 and I saw that he was handling a blaster very well in that scene. Mm. So it makes me think if he is, you know, maybe he's court martialed. He's a court martialed former, former Imperial. Maybe he's a, um, maybe he's part of like a crime syndicate. I don't know if like black sun still exists even <laughs> at this point, but um, one of, you know, maybe he's part of a crime syndicate. Maybe, maybe he's a little bit more than just some, you know, a prisoner with a number to, to the empire. Um, and maybe it happened, maybe it just happened to happen off screen where Cassian and him are talking and they're like, well, what, do, what are you really, you know, what are you in for, but who are you really? And he gives something, but it's all speculation at this point. He's kind of a, he's kind of just a guy on screen, which is a bit interesting whether or not he's going to risk his freedom to, to help the probably hundreds or maybe even thousands of people that probably yeah. died. You know, yeah. they said, you know, maybe it's just them left and that's why they're telling right. everyone. Right. Yeah. I was just so curious about this. So I had to, look him up on Wikipedia uh, mm. for a refresher about just if there was anything about him in Star Wars at all. And um, we've all seen Rogue One. Spoiler alert if you haven't, but he's in Rogue One. He ends up being a sergeant in the Rebellion. 
Mushy. Oh, nice. <laughs> Secrets of Star Wars. Well done. Yeah. Well done. Thank you, yeah. Wikipedia. <laughs> so now the I have to Jedi go archives. rewatch Rogue One. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Be like that guy. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So um, very cool. So yeah. we also have we also have Bell as Ryan brought up um, with Mon Mothma and. They are watching Lita, Mon's uh, daughter, participate in like some kind of traditional chant with an elder and some other young women about how basically you're kept secure by maintaining the old ways, the traditions of um, their culture. And it sounds like between Bell and Mon Mothma that uh, they find this practice to be outdated at best oppressive at worst um but lita is very enthusiastic about this practice um i was wondering if you guys felt like seeing this kind of additional aspect to her character helped you to understand mon mothma's daughter any better like did it bring like because for me I felt like it was a great way to fill in the character, like to give her more depth. Um, Cause a lot of us growing up, either we rebel against our parents were very comforted by the traditions of our cultures. Um, and we really grasp onto that. And sometimes in ways that blind us to the reality of the present, you know, um, when we're very young or when we're very, you know, new to, uh, a movement or whatever it is um there's that newbie tendency to just really like grab onto stuff um so i could definitely relate to that aspect of it and i felt like that sort of filled in a little bit more about maybe why lita wasn't super into whatever her mom was doing on coruscant um but i don't know if you guys had any thoughts on that Lita for me has always been like a tough nut to crack because she hasn't she <clears throat> she has very little dialogue and most of it's sort of flying in the face of Mon Mothma. Is, is, yeah, right. Um, you know, it's the and that kind of shoehorns her as a stereotypical rebellious teenage daughter. Um, this was interesting because it showed that it wasn't like a full blown rebelliousness necessarily against her mom and everything she stood for, because one of the things Vel said to Mon Mothma was like, well, you, you used to do this stuff. Um, and Mon Mothma was like, yeah, but not for like a really long time. And you get kind of the feel that like, um, yeah, Mon Mothma's maybe like, she's, she's seeing this, right. And then she's having this conversation with Vel about the fact that she's probably about to do this thing which she doesn't want to, which is introduce um, Lita to this sleazy mobster's son. And the fact that Lita's in this phase of her development in this traditionalist way of being means she's vulnerable to A, manipulation, or B, just the same thing Mon went through. Because we see the relationship between Mon and her husband currently and how it's kind of not great. And... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> to to put it slightly and and mons probably has some regrets or um and then she's literally watching the same thing potentially playing out 
for her daughter. And then she expresses it so well to Vel, I'm trapped. Like I, and, and she's talking about the financial stuff, but like she, I think the where she really means it is with her daughter. Like I'm trapped. Like I, I can't not do this thing. And I'm terrified of what it's going to do because I know what it did to me when it happened to me. Um, so I didn't get a whole lot of necessarily character development for Lita as much as for Mon. Um, but Lita too, yeah, it, it shows a whole different side of her, right? You get the, she's more than just this stereotypical rebellious teenage daughter, which again, something this show does so very well is give us fully rounded characters <laughs> when you don't expect yeah. them. <laughs> I don't think it made the situation any better because I definitely could see, uh, I definitely could see sort of a lesser show use that scene as a way to like justify an arranged so you know arranged courtship or something like that in this case but i think it's pretty clear that that um maybe this is fulfilling maybe this is fulfilling mon's daughter but it is definitely not there's definitely some danger in there um especially just like you've been saying um impressionistic period where you can really be formed very quickly by something you get into and go really, you know, down the rabbit hole into. Um, I mean, you know, I could come up with a whole bunch of different reasons for why it might be, why she might feel the way she's feeling. Um, what, sorry. What is Mon Mothma's daughter's name? I keep forgetting it. Lita. <laughs> Lita. Thank you. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could probably think of a million different ways to justify how Lita's feeling and maybe what she's doing there, but I'm definitely concerned since both Mon and Vel felt like finding the Elder was a very, they clearly were not happy about that. And the <coughs> fact that she needed to find, um, find the Elder and an adult never showed her how to do that mm. is cause for concern because seeking out, seeking out you know, an adult to basically be a mentor and guy and, you know, quasi spiritual director when you're what, 14 and your parents didn't direct you to this person is quite dangerous. And I think that, you know, Mon has every Mon for sure should feel concerned, which she obviously does. And we're definitely not meant to see this scene as a way to, you know, smooth over or justify anything which is kind of a theme of the whole show where you see mm. all these hard scenes and they're never meant to, uh, they're never meant to make things easier in a sort of in the moral landscape of, of Andor. Right. I mean, it, you could see that Mom Mothma was very disturbed by the whole thing. Um, and that she was still disturbed by the thought of introducing Lita to the son of Davos golden. Um, and the thing is that Lita now has an interest in tradition, and we know this. And that Mon Mothma has always known that. And she's always been disturbed at the idea of an arranged marriage or arranged introduction, at least. Um, and following that tradition of her people. So I don't think it's a way to soothe her conscience. Um, but. I think for a lesser person, it probably could have been. It, it probably could have been, oh, you know, my daughter's into this, so 
you know, uh, maybe I won't feel so bad. Like I'm not forcing her all the way, um, on this situation, but yeah, I, I think you, you're bringing up a good point too, that, um, it is dangerous because she's very impressionable and my Mothman knows that. So if she gets really excited about meeting this guy, this young guy, and having an opportunity to follow this tradition, this one of the old ways as she was chanting, you know, it, it could be a really bad thing because he's the son of a mobster. So. Yes, it always works well when you introduce a 14 year old girl to a guy. Yeah, a 15 year old guy who's probably something of a bad boy who has a bunch of money. Yeah, yeah. that's going to go well. Yeah, I mean, who knows what this guy's like, but definitely having a father in law as the Southern Davos Golden does not Godfather sound like a, a good idea. Godfather. Nice. Yeah. Literally. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, okay, well, off to another, like, not so great topic uh, to discuss. Um, the hey. death of Marva. Um, so we obviously touched on this at the beginning, but oh my gosh, you know, B2 Emo might just be my new favorite droid just because of this one episode. It's um, too emo. <laughs> oh my gosh! I didn't even see it. Oh, what? Are you serious? You're just now getting that? Okay. Wow! Breaking I'm, news. I, I can be pretty thick when I want to be. <laughs> oh my goodness! So oh. yes, B is definitely too emo. Um, but I think he's like maybe too emo for a droid, but not too emo for a person because. I totally related to him. Like, I just felt like he was the most relatable droid in Star Wars ever. <laughs> um, yeah, I, like, they're, they've been really good at making droids. Every new series, show, whatever, uh, movie has a new droid that's amazing for kids, right? And for Andor, they're like, we're going to make one for adults. And then they <laughs> <Yes>. did. <laughs> that is so true. true. Yes. Low energy, always sad. My kind of droid. <laughs> Always sad, Very tired, and, uh... constantly needs to be recharged. Yeah. Like, uh, in a world with COVID where we've all experienced that. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I just, the thing is that they introduced Marva's death from his perspective, from B's perspective and point of view and stayed that way, you know, for much of the storytelling. I mean, I was even watching how they were using the camera and just pointing, you know, when you when we see Marva being taken out, her body being taken out of the house, it's from his perspective inside the house, you know, walking out across the windows. And so, I mean, I just think this was this was good storytelling in this in that sense. But also we got this like hint of. The daughters of Ferrix require your assistance in matters of grave importance. Now, that could be just, you know, getting her stuff together and cleaning up and organizing the house and everything, but it could be something more. So I want to hear what you guys think about, you know, your reaction to Marva's death, your your theories about maybe is there more to this than meets the eye? I think it's actually really meaningful that they had her die or apparently die um, off screen. Um, just as it was meaningful to have 
man, this is a bad day for me with names. What is the floor ma- the floor man's name? Um, oh, Kino. Kino. Yeah, Kino. Just as just as just as it was meaningful to have Kino die off screen, presumably because um, I think it you can show a lot. You can show a lot more with how people react to the news in a sudden way instead of, you know, being if Cassian was by Marva's side when she died, I think it would be. I think we would see a very different side of Cassian than if he had to hear the news and go, um, knowing that he will not get a chance to actually speak to her and say goodbye. I think that's going to really bring something out that we haven't seen for him before because it's kind of the first time he's ran away from someone and he can't go back to them. So I also think it, I also think, like I said earlier, it's, it's neat to see, it's neat to see droids a bit more, a bit more humanized. Um, I, that's why I really loved K2SO a lot because he, he was he was a speaking droid, um, but he also very much, um, he very much cared. I, I was kind of reminded of, I was reminded of some droids in Rebels. Um, oh, what was, what was kind of Chopper's companion droid that came in the later half of the series? I forget his name, but mm. he was a, he was a speaking droid that was also in on the, in on the cause as well, which was, I just like to see, I like to see that because, it's really easy to put all the droids in Star Wars into a, into the R2-D2 box. Um, and sometimes it's cool to see more, more fleshed out droids that, that can really express themselves in a really unique way. Yeah, I, um, <clears throat> I spent a lot of time in that scene thinking about the whole droid uh, personality issue. Uh, because they, when they go to it in the extended universe, or Legends, whatever it's called now, the books... Uh, they, they talk about how, you know, a droid right out of the factory wouldn't have a personality, but it slow ticks over time and problems with circuitry and issues that would slowly build a personality into him. And you get characters like Forlom, who, who even starts to be able to use the force as a droid. And it brings up a really daunting question, which is like, how alive are these things? And at what point are we basically, have we, are we like, do we have an underclass slave society <laughs> of mm-hmm. robots? Right. And what's what's the morality behind this? And that's where my mind went spinning out of control during this whole scene <laughs> was 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 thinking about the morality of these because I mean the whole thrust of that scene was that he, you know the droid was the overly emotional one, right? You know you have in the vast majority of funeral scenes and in real life as well. You typically have one, maybe two people who are just bawling their eyes out and and crying and and they're almost unconsolable or they're basically just being consoled by another person. And so what we get in this scene is the robot is playing that part and he's Mm -hmm. being consoled by the the big guy. I don't remember his name. Um, And so you get this kind of foil position. You can put yourself in both places and you can put yourself fully in the in the position of the droid. And you're thinking, like, how human are these things? And what are the moral complications of that? <laughs> like, yeah. if, if, if this guy, if this 
if this droid doesn't want to stay in the house alone because its master, friend, confidant died, Mm -hmm. like, that is a huge level of emotional connection that's, that's on display, and it's from the perspective of a robot, so... Um, I don't know. I watched The Matrix yeah. a lot as a kid. <laughs> as a young adult, I shouldn't say kid. And so that it, that's always been an interesting conundrum to me is like, what's the, what's the level of morality when you deal with, you know, an AI maybe, or an alien intelligence, that kind of a thing. Yeah. I, I noticed, mean, I, oh, go ahead. I was going to say, I noticed that a lot of bees, uh, whistles and vocalizations in this episode sounded a lot like a dog like a sort of a a sad dog which i found very interesting um that they went that route well and what i was going to say is that um i think they're going that route because star wars droids are sort of like pets most of the time um they have that connection with their master or creator or whatever um and they you know if they can vocalize it takes maybe a little an extra step for us to get to that pet sort of relationship because we relate to them more as people because we just know that people can talk um but i i think i think at least with bisu emo they were probably going more for like a if a dog could talk sort of vibe Um, because of, yeah, just the mannerisms, right? Like you were saying, and, and, you know, I can't help but think of Chopper and how he was very much like a, a pet, like a very proactive pet, but like a pet for the Rebels crew. Um, so that's kind of where my mind went, but I can, you know, it, it is one of those fantasy aspects, I think, that maybe we just don't necessarily check off as a fantasy element of the show um, and maybe of Star Wars because it tends to be sci-fi. But I think in Star Wars, it's kind of a fantasy thing, too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I, I mean, I guess this calls back to the very beginning um, we were talking about how hard this show is to watch sometimes and connect it with star Wars. Um, and I think that was part of it. And, and I want to say, I totally agree with you. Like, um, when rogue one came out, I absolutely hated it. And I did because it wasn't star Wars. Like it was this very gray soupy mess of a show, um, set in a galaxy far, far away, but it didn't feel like it. It felt too real. Um, and then I went and watched it, in the mindset that it's not star Wars, it's a war movie set in the star Wars universe. And I loved it (laughs) because I I like war movies Mm. and I like the star Wars universe. And that's, yeah, that's, um, Cassian for me is very much like a spy show set in the star Wars universe. But because of that, it I like my mind just skips over fantasy elements. It's like, no, that's not part of this. Um, I think the Mandalorian gets away with it a lot better. Because I think the Mandalorian kept a hold of the fantasy elements a lot tighter. Um, and Andor is very much down in the muck in the real world, I guess. I also think Mandalorian kind of achieved a very real spiritual heart to the series. And Andor has not had a spiritual heart um, in, in any way. It's exploring these questions 
really without giving any sort of a, a home base to rest in. Um, you know, if because to compare the two, like Mandalorian rested in the the questions of Mandalorian culture, kind of had the Force in the background to some extent. Um, you know, with with Grogu and learning about who Grogu is, and then the brief appearance with Ahsoka, but um, Andor has really never given us any sort of spiritual, the spiritual side of Star Wars, um, which is pretty lacking since it's so unique to the to the universe um, versus plenty of other fantasy, uh, plenty of other fantasies, sci-fi um, like properties. The way I see it, um, I don't think just because they don't talk about the force doesn't mean that there isn't a spiritual side of this show. I personally see a lot of the spiritual side of the show, but again, like they, they don't talk about it, but they, I think they show it more like in, in the hope that people have. And especially I go back to the Aldani um, garrison show or episode a lot on, on this podcast. But to me, that was like peak spiritual star Wars, even though they weren't talking about the force um, explicitly, but you had the natives um, engaging in this, you know, connection with nature, um, which is essentially, you know, what is part of the force beliefs in, in star Wars. And it was juxtaposed with the empire and with the, also with the rebellion, um, in a sense. Uh, and so, you know, I, I tend to disagree with that. Um, I do miss the force, but I also kind of think of this as, you know, a war show, a spy show. And in war, you, you can have, you know, a spiritual aspect, but there's a lot that kind of really fights against, <laughs> against having and believing in something greater if you're just trying to survive, you know? So, I mean... I, I I can see it from both sides. I guess is what I'm trying to say. Yeah, it's kind of it's hard to have spirituality when you're on the Western Front, sort of. A... Yeah, I think it's been interesting to me to see we've gotten kind of a showcase of individual systems, like belief systems. Like we got kind of the Aldani. You know, we had a whole ritual on display. We didn't really get like the you know theology or meta theology or whatever that metaphysics or any of that, but we got to see you know, there is a spiritual nature to these people's lives. And we've, we've seen it kind of in this episode with the Chandrillion, um, that, you know, the old ways, right. That's probably built in. It was a ritual, very obviously what the children were doing right. with the elder. Um, there was another, Oh, and Ferrix, we're getting to see what they do with the dead. Right. And that, that mm. is always like the hugest piece of any religious uh, system that you've got is what happens after death. And that's a struggle everybody deals with. And the Jedi have a very kind of, you know, this is what happens after death and the Sith kind of do too. But it was never really clear what like the common people believed or, or the individuals who weren't necessarily connected to the Jedi or the Sith or any of the big powers. And it's just, it, it's been interesting to me to see those things kind of put on display by the show. And so that like, you don't have the sort of overriding, theological um 
or metaphysical structure that the force sort of provides, but you do have these spiritual practices that everybody seems to have developed in their own systems. Um, and so I think that's, that's interesting. Yeah. Um, and we also got an interesting look into um, the commitment of Clea um, to the cause of, I guess you could say the rebellion in this episode. Um, you know, last episode we got Luthen's really memorable monologue. And this time we, uh, we can talk about a monologue too, but it's very, very short, but, um, but it's Clea, you know, she, we have Bell saying, um, I gave him Aldani, him being Luthen. What have you done lately? And, um, you know, it's like, Clay is just chilling out in the office with old stuff all the time. No, she's, she says, I don't have lately. I have always, I have a constant blur of plates spinning and knives on the floor and needy panicked faces at the window of which you are one of many. So to me, that almost reminds me of a mother. Um, you know, the kind of a, the mother of this movement. Um, did you guys, I mean, did it strike you at all or? Was it was it maybe just me that was sort of deeply impacted by this? I was like, oh, they're giving her a little, you know, point to 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 give her perspective as well. I think I think it's been really interesting the interplay between uh, her uh, is it Clea, yeah, and yeah, Clea and Luthen, um, because that it sometimes it seems like Luthen's in charge, and sometimes it thinks like Clea in charge, and. Right. I can't figure out who's in charge or, or if either <laughs> of them is. And um, I, I think the conversation that she has with Val and then the conversation she has with Luthen later on in the spy piece, which was awesome. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Both kind of play into that. Um, I really love that scene with Val because I think it shows <laughs> when you were calling her um, kind of motherly, it, what it keys in my mind is like, this is kind of like a spoiled little brat coming to her mom and her mom going, <laughs> look, (laughs) I've only got so much time (laughs) and I can't spend it all with you. That's, that's how it kind of felt like, like the rebellion is bigger than just you. Like, I know you want to talk to Luthen, but I'm sorry. (laughs) We have like ways of doing things and you're putting everything at risk. You know, that's, that's what I got out. (laughs) Found it interesting that we've never seen Clea out have we we've seen one scene with Clay outside of that shop? Is that right? Yeah, she I was think so. It, yeah, it really it really does seem that she you know who knows maybe she sleeps there when it comes to just the level of the level of commitment she has to doing to to doing all of the critical things that that you never see screen time for in even this show that you go to the sort of background of the rebellion. You don't you don't see you don't see Clea managing managing, you know, all the different spy codes and networks and and moving information. And I mean, she's in many ways, she's she is kind of like Luthen. She's given her whole life over to this thing. It's pretty clear. Um, She's she's never she's she's committed. She can't leave um, just like Luthen. And, you know, she definitely seems like she gets she gets flack from not just Vel in the grand scheme of things when she says, 
she says she has, you know, panicked faces showing up at her door. Um, I'm pretty sure she's had to keep those doors closed sometimes as well. Um, and she, she's definitely, she reminds me kind of, of like a 911 dispatch. You know, yeah. she, she hears everything and she, she sometimes has to make, she sometimes has to make very difficult calls and hear, you know, the absolute worst of, of the rebellion and still deal with it and still show up the next day and who knows maybe never get a day off yeah well speaking of commitment um let's talk about saw and luthan because um saw is so enthusiastic about helping anto krieger and then luthan kind of turns the tables on him and this is where i imagine saw his paranoia coming into play (laughs) And being born um, in this scene. Um, what did you guys learn from this scene yourselves? Like, what did, what, what really struck you about this scene? And I mean, I just, I think it's one of my favorite scenes in the episode. I thought it was, I thought it was really telling the level of, I guess, like the level of tolerance to danger that both Saw and Luthen had where, you know, Luthen pulls a gun on Saw, and they both know he's probably not going to pull the trigger. Um, that they're so, they're both men that are so, they have seen so much violence, they're so comfortable with dealing in death, that even, even someone just putting a gun to your face is more of a way to just say, hey, I need you right here, right now, I need you to listen, <laughs> instead of, I'm going to, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. Um, it was... I mean, maybe it speaks to the level of sanity that both Saw and Luthen <laughs> seem to have that they that part of their part of their conversation is threatening each other really openly in front of everyone in that room, which is even more concerning, but it yeah, it it really it reminds me of kind of the whole arc we've seen with Saw's character and his descent into just being completely isolated by himself, um, that he, he really shows in this scene. He's not, he's not to the point where he's just, you know, in his, in his cave somewhere, he wants to help. Um, uh, and was Anton Krieger is his name. Yeah. Anton Krieger. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, He want he wants to help Krieger and not just leave him to the wolves, but, um, you know, Mr. Mr. Pragmatic Consequentialist Luthen comes in and explains explains the real the real ways of things and does his classic. This is what you actually think. And, you know, saw. Needs to have a gun pulled on him to, <laughs> to change his mind, <laughs> which is kind of, you know, it shows he's certainly he's certainly strong willed enough that Luthen kind of has to revert, revert to that in order to convince him. <laughs> Yeah, I, I think the most interesting thing to me about the scene was the fact that Luthen told Luthen laid his cards on the table, like completely. Yeah, like he just yeah. told Saul, "Look, it, it's a trap. Krieger's men are going to get killed. If you go, you're going to die too." And it's a um, trap. Yeah, sorry, I, don't know I had to. It's a trap. It's, it's Star Wars. <laughs> <I had to. laughs> and, and 
I think it's every Star Wars show has to have a trap somewhere. <laughs> it's required. Um, required. We need a t-shirt <laughs> now. I feelings like, about this. Loose him right. on it, saying it's a trap. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Have we have we had anybody say I've got a bad feeling about this yet? I don't think so. I don't, know. I don't, think I don't so. even know if that's going to happen at that. this point. <laughs> it, I I've got a bad feeling about episode twelve. So I. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's true. We're going to see something happen with Cyril. That's yeah. all I know. <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah, talk yeah. about a bad feeling. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, but just just how that scene it was interesting to me it it taught me a lot about both Saul and Luthen, how that scene progressed, you know, cause it, it goes, you know, Saul's like, I'm, I'm ready. Let's go. And Luthen's just like, uh, split decision. Okay. I'm telling you, and I'm, I'm laying it out there. And then Saul's reaction is just like, well, that's interesting. <laughs> like you get to kind of see who Saul is early on in his career in the rebellion, that he is not, you know, a complete whack job, more or less what he is mm-hmm. in, in rogue one. But he's not sane either. He's he's definitely no. somewhere in the in the middle of that whole the the paranoia leaking out of his head and Luthen going, Oh yeah, it's this guy and then the other guy like pleading for his life effectively because he knows like if he's a traitor, Saul's gonna kill him. And then and then, you know, Luthen using that to, to kind of focus Saw. it's very interesting to me and it was a lot of character development from my perspective, because it's just you always get this feeling from Luthen that he just doesn't trust anybody mm. like, and, and maybe not even Clea cause he talks to her, but you never see this, like any sort of deep explanation of what's going on or the things that are happening. They're always like back and forth and you sort of just assume Clea knows what's going on and what's happening, but maybe she doesn't. And, and in this one, you just see like, saw just spills the beans like full blown. And you're like, Oh, interesting. Like he, he trusts this guy, even though he's kind of, crazy <laughs> and paranoid but he also sees a lot of worth in him and um and for me it was very much a callback to the whole um the problem with code breaking just in war situations which is you always end up with the the germans are going to blow up this town and if i do something about that then they'll know we broke the code and they'll switch it but I need to keep it because we have some offensive coming up. And so I'm going to let this town get wiped off the map. And how do I feel about that? (laughs) Mm -hmm. And um, I think that was a lot of Luthen's speech in the, in the prior episode. And then a lot of Clea's speech, like you were saying, Um, like folks, folks doing radio traffic in the military have a a very high depression rate um, and have a lot of other typically mental um, issues, uh, mental disease right. issues, because of the fact that they have to hear that stuff. They have to hear, you know, the cries for help with the realization that we we can't send help, but I have to listen to it because it's part of my job. Um, and so you do kind of get that that view, and then maybe Luthen isn't making the right choice by telling Saw because he's, he's letting someone else into his confidences, but he doesn't want to also see saw go down too. like, he's also mm-hmm. having to let go of, uh, Anton, is it Anto? Anto, Anto. Yeah. Yeah. Anto Krieger. Anton Krieger. And he's like, yeah. I can't lose both of you. <laughs> like mm-hmm. I don't, and I don't even know. Cause the way Luthen's talking, I don't even know if it's just from a, like a tactical perspective or logistics. I can't lose both of you. It also kind of feels like, a. 
you know, us and some other folks have been in this game long enough and you're my compatriots and I can't lose both of you. Like I, I, I just couldn't do it kind of a thing. I don't know. Yeah. It was like saw kept saying, so that's X number of men. And then you would just hear, have Luthen be like plus Anto, like plus Anto Krieger. So it's almost like he was saying, I know that I'm going to lose this guy and this it's not, without consequence i know that there's consequences and i hate that this is happening um and this reminds me of some feedback that we got on the last show via youtube a comment by arvis conti uh username thank you very much for listening um but i want to give this excerpt here so they said disney's degrading of the good continues right from the first episode when cassian murders a police officer in cold blood up to this episode when Mon is preparing to trade her daughter's hand in marriage for the rebellion. Andor has consistently chipped away the honor and good that the rebellion has always had. So again, thank you for listening. I want to just open that up for a little bit. Is this Disney's fault or is war even possible without all that Andor is putting on center stage here? Um, because, you know, that's kind of my perspective is that, um, you know, even as Catholics, right, looking at the catechism about war, you know, it, it repeats about how, you know, evils and injustices accompany all war. Um, and you can't have war without this stuff. I mean, there's no war that's ever going to be good there could be, you know, certain reasons that could help justify some people's defending their home, but the war is not going to be good, you know? So, you know, that's kind of my perspective is like, you know, we're talking about how, yeah, like Ryan was saying, Andor is difficult to watch. Um, and because Star Wars has kind of become our escape from reality. And now here we are, like, looking at all this sacrifice and suffering and vice and these little side stories, you know, that are really difficult to watch and reminds us of reality. But I, I don't know. I'm just, I, I want to get you, you guys' thoughts on that too. You know, like, I, is I, war even possible? <laughs> yeah. I, I always go back to C.S. Lewis um, on that one. And his take was very much like, War is the worst of things because it takes all of the worst things and puts it into one little box and then shoves a, a person into it and says, do your best. You know, um, you have like the worst possible conditions combined with the worst thing that you're doing, which is trying to kill another human being or other human beings. Um, and yeah, I, I very much agree. Like it's, it's not something that's good. Like pretty much ever. Like there are good reasons to fight war. Um, and there are terrible decisions that happen in wartime that are made for very, very good reasons, but they're still terrible. Like you, you end up like war at, at its best. You're still in a gray soup. Like there's no way to get to, to black and white, um, in war. And, um, whether or not it's Disney's fault for showing it, <laughs> you know, <laughs> I think it's Disney's fault for choosing to do this kind of show. I actually think it's um, as much as I, I've enjoyed uh, Dave Filoni and um, uh, mm -hmm. shoot, 
the other guys kind Kathleen of Kathleen Kennedy. Um, no, um, Chef oh. John Favreau. Favreau, yes, the two yeah. Fs, Filoni and Favreau. Yes. Um, yeah, they're kind of shepherding of the Star Wars sort of metaverse or or the Star Wars shows. They've been driving here for however many years since Clone Wars started. This is where this is the end point of where we were going. Um, you know, the Clone Wars were darker or more gray than the movies were. You know, Rogue One was a very gray movie. Um, Han Solo was a very gray movie <laughs> or Solo. Sorry. Um, you know, I would even say this, this, the, not the prequel, the sequel trilogy. Sequel trilogy. Yeah. yeah. was a little more gray than the other, the prequel trilogy and the original trilogy. And then Mandalorian was a step further. And then the book of Boba Fett was a step further. That's kind of seems like it didn't step far enough for what it was supposed to be. <laughs> you know, a guy yeah, taking I over a mob. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a guy like a taking, Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> at least we got like a bantha yeah uh and uh and then and then we're here um and so uh, yeah maybe we can blame disney for bringing us here but what we're seeing is is just sort of the terribleness that is war and that is spycraft which is like an extra set of terribleness on top of war because that you you're 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 at least at least in in war when you're on a battlefield there's some amount of honor to what you're doing at least the focus sense on the of field. honesty too that's right like i yeah i'm holding this big gun i have armor on the guy across can see that he knows i'm a combatant i can see that that mm-hmm. guy's a combatant we at least know we're on those terms and in spycraft all that's out the window like yeah. who knows who's what um and so that so it's, I guess it's the darkest place in where you can go. And that's where we're at, whether or not it's Disney's fault. I don't you know. <laughs> yeah. I, I kind of, I kind of sympathize to a certain extent with what this commenter's saying, because I agree that we didn't, I don't think that in my opinion, I don't think that Andor has necessarily um, really given us something really good to add to the star Wars universe um, as the star Wars universe. I think it's a very good show. It's clearly done very, it's done very well. The characters are well-rounded. It investigates some really, some really heavy stuff in a way that, you know, is, is hard to do well without seeming like you're being, you know, trying to shove people's shove something down people's throats with the message or something. Um, which I haven't actually got from Andor, which I've been pleasantly surprised about. But um, I, I guess, speaking from my personal perspective, I, I did not necessarily need Andor in the same way that I felt I really needed to like keep going with Clone Wars. So for context, I'm, I'm working my way through uh, the Clone Wars TV series for the first time. I'm... I just started season six, so we're right in the thick of the kind of the the real downfall of things. We're getting close to Order 66. And in that show, I really felt like, man, this is hard and this is difficult, but I I feel like this is good and I need this. And this is very this brings something this brings out something very good in the Star Wars universe. Um, With with Andor, while the show itself is good. And 
Um, and I think that it does show some very interesting things in the Star Wars universe. I just, I, I don't really know if it, I don't really know if I, if when I finish this series, you know, th- this coming uh, Wednesday, that I will feel like, man, I'm glad that Andor happened, if, if that makes sense. Like, that that doesn't mean to say I, that doesn't mean to say that it's a bad show, like, standing alone, but I don't know if it's necessarily a good show to have in the, the Star Wars universe, where things tend to be a little bit more idealized than a lot of other, um, than a lot of other shows. Right. True. Um, I think I definitely respect that, that point of view. I think for me, I've been grateful for what Andor has done for me as a Star Wars fan, because it made me realize that I am a fan of a saga, a brand, whatever you want to call it, a story that is named after war like that is centered Mm -hmm. and built around war and i would rather be a fan of something like that and be aware of these little side stories with the difficulty and and being you know not ignorant to the fact that if the wars existed then these things also by you know just the nature of war like had to also exist so you know, I do, I do enjoy the idealism um, and the spirituality and the, the times that Star Wars can be black and white um, and my escape. But I think I also didn't want to, I realized I didn't want to subconsciously be romanticizing conflicts. Um, I'm glad that I'm like aware of, you know, like, this is about war. So, so that's kind of, you know, I, yeah, I think it's really interesting to talk about. And so thank you guys for, for going there with me too. Um, but we can now talk about the fun part, which is Luthen's traffic stop. (laughs) (laughs) That's what I'm here for. (laughs) Um, did you guys, did you think he was going to end up captured or killed? No, I think no. he's he was he's has too many cards to play that he he's got. I'm pretty sure that's only scratched the surface of what that ship's got on it. Um, <laughs> I was wondering, I mean, obviously, this was before we saw like the Darth Maul type of like laser mm-hmm. whatever coming out of the side yeah. of the Fondor. But I mean, for a while, it was like, oh, my gosh, are they actually going to keep him in this tractor beam? It was <laughs> It was really tense, but it was awesome. Yeah, I thought it was cool that, I mean, maybe it just speaks to sort of the Empire's um, naivety, but the captain was like, that ship can't have countermeasures. Like, what ships do have countermeasures? Like, is there, is this a thing that, is this a thing that exists in Star Wars now? Ships that have tractor beam countermeasures and they're these cool spy ships that, go all over the place i want to know that now (laughs) (laughs) yeah that's a good point like because we didn't see any any sort of tricks like that ever pulled with the millennium falcon Mm -hmm. like ships you would expect like to have something like that um like uh the mandalorian ship um hmm i mean the best we got was was in the mandalorian when he had the new ship and the traffic patrol yeah pulled up and he was just like boom 
<laughs> they were like, yeah. did he just jump to hyperspace? Like, no, he didn't. He's just that yeah, fast. Yeah, just a slam. Yeah. I'm a big fan of the Star Wars X-Wing miniatures game, which is all about all the ships in, in the Star Wars universe. And man, I want Luthen's ship to be in that game now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a cool ship. Yeah. I love the, the flak cool. that broke up the the dish that mm-hmm. was at him. And then that, yeah, the lasers out of the side of the ship, that was... I was like, what? <laughs> like, what mm-hmm. just happened? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I guess it was like less Darth Maul saber and more like, um, the, like the, the, yeah, the Inquisitors, like they're, they're, cause it was spinning and all that good stuff. <laughs> okay. And the other thing we have to talk about is the really bad Zoom call, um, with Cyril Ugh. and Sergeant Mosk. Uh, <laughs> I got I got Zoom call vibes from that. I don't know about you guys. Um, <laughs> yeah. So I mean, what what's gonna happen? Cyril's obviously going to Ferrix. Mm-hmm. So what's he gonna do? Is well, first of all, is Cassian gonna go to Ferrix? Do you think he's going? I wonder if this is a bit of a weird theory. I wonder if um, Cyril is... I, I, I have a feeling that we're going to see Dedra in conflict with Luthen at some point. I feel like Luthen is going to be returning to Ferrix because he knows that Andor is going there. And that something's going to blow up. They're going to realize that's the guy. There's going to be a shootout. I have a feeling, actually, that Cyril is going to um, possibly even die in sacrifice for Dedra and that that is going to potentially open up a scene, uh, an arc maybe in season two where Dedra may defect. That is a very out there theory. I know, but I think that there's some, there's some, Hmm. I don't think, I don't even know if we're going to see Cyril in season two. Like he's an, he's a very interesting character. I like him. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He doesn't seem like he has anything left. I have a feeling he's going to die by someone's hand, but I'm not sure who, I'm not sure what's going to come about from that. That's my, no, out there theory. (laughs) I think, um, I think we're going to see everybody. Everybody's going to be on Ferrix. Absolutely. Um, and Cyril's story has been very interesting because we've seen him go from, you know, like sharp, young, leader type guy up and comer to knocked all the way down to like child, you know, where he's waking mm-hmm. up in his, his childhood bedroom crying and getting uh cereal fed by his mom. Who's telling him to sit up straight. Um, you mm-hmm. know, and then we get him progressing slowly back up through the years to all the way to, um, my first real crush, which is dead. <laughs> <laughs> he's just, of oh, course, you know, blinded by love. <laughs> Because his his pronouncement of love to Dedra, and she's just like, "What in the hell?" She's <laughs> like, know? "I can get you. I can send you back to where Cassian is on that prison planet." <laughs> yeah, yeah. And he's like, "You're the reason I think there's hope," you know. And it's <laughs> oh, man. it's just such like teenage rom- Like, so you just see him progress. Like, he gets knocked all the way back down to childhood, and you see yeah. him slowly progress. And now he's got this decision to make about Cassian. 
And he kind of, you kind of see like he's got all these hopes and dreams sort of built up in his head about it. And, you know, whatever happens on Ferrix, I have this feeling whether he dies or he lives, all of that's going to get like washed out of him. And it's going to be that as long as he lives, it's going to be that moment we all go through in our growing up phase where we realize like, you know, maybe we can't take on the whole world. <laughs> like, like maybe we can't fix the thing we really, really, really want to. Um, mm. And there's a reality to life. And then that typically drives most people into a, a state of introspection, both about themselves and the world they, they live in. Um, I'm still quietly hopeful he's going to end up in the rebellion somehow. Um, and I think the way that would go down this time was he would, he gets injured um, and then he gets kind of nursed back to health by in the rebellion. Um, mm -hmm. and he, um, so that's, then again, could die saving Deidre. I could see both. And I, you know, I'd be yeah. perfectly happy either way. <laughs> I gotta admit. I'd, mm -hmm. I'd just be really interested to see, to see like Dedra really come to terms with seeing the faces of the rebellion, because so far she really has only seen Bix and Bix isn't properly a rebel. Um, I wonder what effect it's going to have on her if she's just going to become more hardened and become, you know, just, you know, Tarkin levels of cold and calculating to end this thing. Or if she's going to start, you know, questioning things like Cyril has been where it's like, man, what's going on? You know, what kind of get kind of get shell shocked in a way because we haven't really seen if she has seen combat because we definitely knew Cyril didn't, but she seems pretty resolved. So she's definitely seen torture, but maybe she's mm -hmm. never been shot at. Who knows? Yeah. Like, yeah. I, I want to talk about a little bit about Bix if I can, like just sure, seeing sure. her completely wasted. Um, and like tor <sighs> torture doesn't work. Like I, <laughs> I just kept wanting to yell that at the screen. Mm -hmm. Like mm -hmm. it doesn't like, statistically it provides very little actual intelligence like because mm. eventually you the tortured person gets to a point where they will tell you anything and they are going right. to try and guess what you want to hear and they will tell you that and so that's that scene where she's sitting there and she's just like sallow faced and like barely alive or barely cognizant of the reality around her and they have krieger you know anto krieger there spinning on a hole and and they're asking her, is this, you know, the person that at, uh, Andor met with? And you can tell, like, you can see it in her face. Like, she is trying to figure out what they want to hear so that she doesn't get tortured again. And at the same mm -hmm. time, she doesn't know, like, she might not even know. Like, you can kind of tell, like, she's confused as to even what they're asking yeah. her. Like, she's not even there anymore. And so, like, the the... I love when uh, Dedra said in one of the episodes that like, oh yeah, it's a high level of confidence because it was Dr. Whatever's version of, of you yeah. know, inform information yeah. extraction. And I'm like, no, it's not. No, it's not. Torture doesn't work. <laughs> <laughs> like we all know this. <laughs> so I, but very clearly it's the empire, right? And they are, you know, vaudeville level villains. Like, you know, you get to Tarkin and he's just like this perfect you know, vaudeville villain who's been brought into a space universe. Um, mm -hmm. And that, that is ultimately when you get down to it, like the empire is evil kind of for evil sake. And that, that's sort of yeah. part of the fantasy element. Yeah, definitely. 
Um, well, I want to ask Ryan if you have any music notes for us before we wrap up, because uh, Pat and I were just talking before the show started recording that mm -hmm. we both realized with this episode that the music at the beginning with the logo of the show, um, it changes every episode. Yes, and we just realized that. Yeah, we just, it does. Episode 11, that's when we realized it. <laughs> <laughs> I've... I have not had the time to go back for every single intro episode intro to see where that where that music gets used again or when mm -hmm. it was used. The biggest thing I noticed from this episode, we did not get the fun music when we went to Nidaros, I believe it was called. We did not get the cool cyberpunk music mm -hmm. for that planet coming yeah. back to it. It 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 very and I and I guess it makes sense why, because it's not it's not the it's not the escape dream world it was anymore for Cassian. Um, overall, um, I I don't have any big like oh man this was really interesting musical bits for this episode. Um, uh, though I have noticed a few times sometimes they do really good stuff with the lack of music in certain scenes. Um, like a lot of the, uh, the a lot of the Andani. Um, scenes didn't have music at all and that was very impactful to the tension of the scene mm -hmm. uh, but yeah that was that was the the biggest uh, musical i guess observances i had this time around not a whole not a whole lot but still something cool well we'll definitely have more music uh related episodes on the podcast that mm -hmm. will definitely grab you in for so Mm -hmm. uh yeah any any final thoughts observations before we kind of get a sneak peek of next week here i mean this was this was very much a, um you know next time on star wars ball z kind of a, <laughs> a feel at the end. for anybody who watched you know the other show i'm referencing um but you know at the end of it you're very much left with the everybody's going to this funeral like it's just mm -hmm. going to be this huge thing. Like, uh, like, like, what's his name? And in, in that one movie, walking down the street, firing the gun. It's it was a firefight. You know, you just feel like like, oh, shoot out an OK Corral is gonna happen here. <laughs> like this is mm -hmm. this is it. And you know, being the twelfth episode, obviously it is it. But like that, that's just the feeling. There's just so like I can't wait. Like. I, I want to watch it now. <laughs> for better or worse, I have no idea who's going to live and no idea who's going to die. Well, we know Cassian lives. We know Cassian so makes it, that. yeah. <laughs> we know Cassian makes it, but we know Cassian makes it, we know Mon makes it. Um, is there any... I, I can't think of a single other person that we know is making this making it out of this thing alive. So I'm I'm definitely interested to see to see who's left standing at the end of Andor, um, because they could definitely, they could, I mean, they could certainly go the clean slate route, you know, have, have plenty or, or most of the people, most of the people die in some sort of a shootout and only Cassian lives or something crazy like that. But who knows what'll happen for better or worse. Don't know. Yeah. All right. Well, what about you guys listening? Please email us your thoughts about Andor at Star Wars at SQPN.com or 
find StarQuest on Facebook at facebook.com slash StarQuestMedia. You can leave a comment there or you can simply tweet us at SQPN and be sure to share the podcast on social media as well. And each and every one of us owes a big thank you to the people who make this podcast even possible, who are our patrons, including Devin O, Ann W, Thomas V, Michael, and Shelly B, and Mark V. And you too can help StarQuest continue our mission by becoming a patron at sqpn.com slash give. Um, be sure to like and subscribe and all those good things. You can find us uh, Secrets of Star Wars everywhere that you find podcasts pretty much. And our previous episodes are also found on sqpn.com slash Star Wars. Um, all right. So next week, we will be taking a deeper look at what promises to be a very exciting finale episode of Andor. Until next time, thank you for joining me on sharing uh, the Secrets of Star Wars. Uh, Pat, Patrick Mason, a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here. And Ryan, also great to have you back and looking forward to more as well. Thanks. I always enjoy it. And once again, I'm Angela Ciolana. Thank you for listening to The Secrets of Star Wars on StarQuest. Here's another show on the StarQuest Network you're sure to enjoy. The Secrets of Stargate. Find it wherever fine podcasts are found or at sqpn.com slash stargate.